1878, Stringy Bark Creek, Victoria. Four most unscrupulous ruffians are at large in the colony after the murder of two constables. These aren't just any ruffians. This is the Kelly Gang. I'm your host Cambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Islanders, so this week I have something a little different. I don't usually go this far back in time, but I thought I would delve into the depths of the newspapers and bring you the story of the Kelly Gang, most unscrupulous ruffians as they were described on the Monday the 28th of October 1878 edition of the Argus. Back then they called them bush rangers. Originally, the term meant escaped convicts that ran off into the Australian bush hiding from the cops. As time went on, the term evolved to refer to crims that used the bush as a base to commit robberies, sort of like highwaymen in Britain and outlaws of the wild west of the US of A. The colony of New South Wales was founded in 1788 as a penal colony. The first settlement in what would be known as Victoria happened in 1803 at Sullivan Bay, which is basically around from the area where Melbourne is now at Port Phillip Bay. Now, Tara and Barney can correct me on that. One of the most famous Australian bushrangers was Edward Ned Kelly. So, so thanks to John V. Barry from the Australian Dictionary of Biography, The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald newspapers, here we go. Now, John Red Kelly, Ned's father, was born in Tipperary Island in 1820. He would be sentenced in 1841 to seven years for stealing a couple of pigs. Back then, you most likely would be sent to the penal colony in Tasmania, then called Van Diemen's Land. In 1848, with his sentence expired, he went to the settlement in Port Phillip Bay where he met his wife, Ellen Quinn, the daughter of James and Mary Quinn. In 1850, they were married. Born in Beveridge, Victoria, around December 1854, Ned was the third of eight children. However, this is probably when he was born, as his relos reckon he was born at the time of the Eureka Stockade where on the 3rd of December 1854, gold prospectors in Ballarat, Victoria, rose up against the government in relation to wanting the abolition of mining licences and other mining reforms. Probably, I think, another episode could deal with the Eureka Stockade, but it was a big thing in Australia, and even the flag they designed at the time, a blue background with a white cross and four stars at each end of the cross and one in the middle, is still used today in defiance of the man. 
So we'll go with that date rather than June 1855, which was calculated by the age of Ned on his father's death certificate. The family lived at Avenel, north of Melbourne, where Ned went to school. While in Avenel, Ned risked his life to save a drowning boy and the parents gave him a green sash to thank him. At 12 years of age, his father died and this left young Ned as the oldest male in the household. Doing it tough, Ellen took the kids up to where her father had cattle running at 11 Mile Creek near Wangaratta and Glen Rowan, which is about 240 kilometres or 150 miles northwest of Melbourne. You flash your Wangaratta. This place, even now, I would consider being out in the sticks. So you can imagine 100 years ago, it was very remote and definitely out the back of fuckfuck. Soon Ned was getting himself into trouble, nicking horses and cattle with his granddad and other uncles. Ned, at 14 years of age, would be arrested and held in custody on two occasions in 1869 and 1870, first for the alleged assault of a Chinaman where he was held for 10 days and the second where he was suspected of being in cahoots with Bush Ranger Harry Power where he was held for seven weeks. On both occasions, the charges were dismissed. The Chinaman incident involved Chinese pig and fowl dealer Ah Fook. Ah Fook passing by the Kelly home and Ned jumps out with a big stick to hold him up and steals 10 shillings. Ah Fook runs off to the police and puts in a report with Sergeant James Whelan. The cops believed him as by this stage the Kellys were known for being a bunch of crims. Now according to Ian Jones's book Ned Kelly, A Short Life, that reads, The next morning... Whelan chased down Kelly in the bush outside Greta and took him to Benalla, where he testified in court the next day that Fook abused his sister Annie for giving him creek water, not rainwater, when, as a traveller, he requested a drink. Then the story went, Fook beat Ned with a stick after he came to his sister's defence. Annie and two family-related witnesses corroborated Ned's story. Given that no other witnesses came forward, the charge was dismissed on the 26th of October and Kelly was released. Yeah, we used to have this uh, bona fide traveller thing where you couldn't get a beer in any pub on a Sunday unless you were a bona fide traveller. So you get in your car, go and have a few drinks and drive home drunk. They don't do that anymore. In 1870, the 1870 arrest was much more serious. There were were a series of robberies by Bush Ranger Harry Power and a young accomplice. Police ended up suspecting Ned, but on all four charges, witnesses failed to identify him and the charges were dropped. Now, this, some would say, was because of intimidation from the Kelly clan. Others say his arrest was pure police harassment. So, I guess you could take it either way. Later in 1870... Ned was convicted of summary offences and did six months. Now, summary offences are those that can be dealt with by a magistrate only rather than a judge and jury. So, as you can see, Ned Kelly, his family and friends are living the thug life, so to speak. They're well-known by police as outlaws. 
Now, being of Irish descent, they had a natural dislike of the British colonial rule as well. Now, back in the day, bush rangers were able to evade police by not only living in the middle of fuck fuck, but they had a vast network of sympathisers that they could stop by and receive assistance from. Police would often go out for days, camping as they went, in search of outlaws, or as we call them, bush rangers. Rather than go into too much detail about what Ned and his mates got up to, I will concentrate on three main incidents. Oh, and by the way, it's around 1874 that Ned grows his beard. He looks like a hipster barrister in some Melbourne cafe. Ned was doing it before it was cool, my hipster friends. First, there is the Fitzpatrick incident where Constable Alexander Fitzpatrick tried to arrest Dan Kelly, Ned's brother. Second, the stringy bark murders of the police in relation to the Fitzpatrick incident. And third, the final showdown where Ned Kelly wears his homemade suit of armour in a shootout at Glen Rowan. On to the Fitzpatrick incident. On the 15th of April, 1878, Ned has been his usual bad boy and the cops want to arrest him. Constable Strawn, who was in charge of Greta Cop Shop, found out that Ned was in a shearing shed and he wanted to go get him. Problem is that in Greta at the time, the police station could not be left unattended. Strawn called in Constable Alexander Fitzpatrick to come and take over on relief duty. Well, Fitzy did start out on his way, but stopped at a pub for probably a bit longer than he should. Once on his way again, he remembered about a wanted notice for Dan Kelly in the Police Gazette, and that was for horse stealing. Fitzy decided to go to the Kelly house instead of the Greta cop shop so he could arrest Dan. Now, it was procedure to never go to the Kelly's place alone. You had to take someone with you because they're a bunch of mad cunts. So he gets to the Kelly house, but Dan isn't there. He decides to stay for a while to chat to Ellen Kelly, Ned and Dan's mum. After an hour or so, Fitzpatrick left, but then he saw two men on horses approaching the house. It was Dan Kelly and his brother-in-law, Bill Skillion. He went back to the house to arrest Dan, but Dan asked if he could have some dinner before they left. Fitzpatrick agreed and Dan had dinner. Then Ned burst into the door with the help of his mum, Ellen, who whacked Fitzy over the head with a shovel. Then Ned shot him in the arm, just above the wrist. Fitzy was knocked out and when he came to, Ned took a knife and removed the slug from his arm so it couldn't be used as evidence. He let Fitzpatrick go as long as he promised not to say a word of what happened. Fitzpatrick left the house But of course, as soon as he got back, he told his boss what had happened. Now that's one version of the events. Another is where Fitzpatrick turned up at the house to arrest Dan. Ellen Kelly asked if he had a warrant and Fitzy said he only had a telegram. Ellen would have none of this and told Fitzy to piss off. Fitzy pulled out his gun and said, I'll blow your fucking brains out if you interfere. Ellen yelled back, You would not be so handy with that pop gun of yours if Ned was here. Dan then said, There's Ned coming along by the side of the house. Now, this was bullshit. He was just trying to get Fitzy to look that way. And it did work. And Dan was able to grab the gun. Dan then told Fitzpatrick to leave. Now, there's another version. 
And that is, while waiting for Dan to finish, finish his dinner, Fitzpatrick made a pass at Kate Kelly, Dan's sister, and that Dan started to beat him up. Then Ned turned up and got involved. You wouldn't want that to happen, would you? Throwing Fitzpatrick against a door, and that's how he got his injured wrist. Not from a gunshot. Anyway, the cops came back and arrested Ellen Kelly and Bill Skillian and another guy called Williamson. But Dan and Ned had got away. On the 17th of May, 1878, at Benalla Court, Williamson, Skillian and Ellen Kelly were charged with aiding and abetting attempted murder. The three appeared on the 9th of October, 1878 and charged with attempted murder. Skillian and Williamson both received sentences of six years and Ellen three years of hard labour. Now, they're all found guilty on Fitzpatrick's evidence. Fitzy turned up at the hearing drunk and he would later be thrown out of the force for drunkenness and perjury. So there you go. So the cops still wanted to get Ned and Dan for attempted murder. They went bush and met up with Joe Byrne and Steve Hart. The four of them would be known as the Kelly Gang. The gang committed two more big bank robberies and police underwent a huge manhunt. Now, not all police disliked the Kellys. While reading up on this, I came across a story where a reporter was in a large town and one of the bars was full of police drinking. They all held Ned Kelly in high regard. So when you have a large proportion of the population, including police on your side, it makes being on the run a lot easier. And this is probably why Ned Kelly has a reputation as such a hero, a man against the establishment, one who would share the loot he stole with his supporters, and that he was a man of the people. So now we get to the Stringybark Creek incident. So a huge manhunt was on for the Kelly gang. In October 1878, Sergeant Kennedy and Constables Lonigan, Scanlon and McIntyre from Mansfield went in search of Ned and his gang, while another party of five police from Greta set out and they planned to make a pincer movement and surround the Kellys. Now they believed they were in the Wombat Ranges. Sergeant Kennedy and his constables set up camp in an old miner's hut at Stringybark Creek. The next day, Kennedy and Scanlon went to explore the area, leaving McIntyre and Lonigan at camp. Lonigan thought he heard noises, and McIntyre went to investigate, hoping it was a kangaroo that they could shoot for dinner. In fact, it was a couple of parrots, so he brought them back instead. The gunshots alerted Ned, who was in the area. The Kelly gang moved up on the campsite and surprised McIntyre and Lonigan. As Lonigan reached for his gun, Ned shot him dead. McIntyre surrendered and they waited for Kennedy and Scanlon to return. Eventually, when they did return, they wouldn't surrender and in the shootout, Scanlon was killed and Kennedy was so badly injured, Ned finished him off as an act of mercy. Somehow, McIntyre escaped back to Mansfield and reported the killings. So now, the Kelly gang were really in the shit. On the 9th of December, 1878, the gang held up the National Bank at Euroa, taking £2,000 in notes and gold. On the Saturday, the 8th of February, 1879, they locked up two policemen at Gerildery Police Station in New South Wales, 
got dressed in their police uniforms and waited there until Monday when the Bank of New South Wales opened and they held it up, taking another 2,000-odd pounds in notes and coin. That would have been a lot of money. They've just knocked off two banks and they've got 4,000-odd pounds. They'd rounded up about 60 people and they'd held them at the Royal Hotel in Gerildery. It is here that Ned gave the owner what would become known as the Gerildery Letter, which is an almost 8,000-word statement from Ned outlining why he did what he did and justifying the killing of the three police at Stringybark Creek. So, sort of like his manifesto. Now, as a bonus, I will read out the letter in its entirety after this episode drops, probably on Sunday. (laughs) That will give me a chance to catch up on things, and if only I had someone with an Irish accent to read it out. So, if you're hearing this now before Sunday, send me an email. And you've got to have an Irish accent. So, the Kelly gang headed back towards Glen Rowan in Victoria. Joe Byrne of the Kelly gang had a friend called Aaron Sherrod, who turned police informer, a grass. Joe found out about this, went to his house at Beechworth and shot him dead. All the while, four cops were hiding in his bedroom. They'd been there to protect Sherrod. Joe then met up with Ned, Dan and Steve Hart at Glen Rowan. Knowing that the police would send a trainload of officers up from Melbourne, Ned had the idea to damage the train tracks. They failed, but were able to get some line repairers to sort of do a job on it. The gang then took over the whole town of Glenrowan, as they'd done before at Gerildery, rounding everyone up and keeping them at the Glenrowan Inn. At the other hotel, McDonald's Railway Hotel, They stashed blasting powder, and this is where they stored their famous suits of armour. All four of them had these. The suits were made from plough boards. They covered the chest, back, shoulder and groin areas, plus they all had a helmet. They were quite heavy and restricted movement, but they were strong enough to repel bullets. So back to the Glen Rowan Inn, where now 62 of the townspeople were now being held. As a train full of police had yet to arrive, Ned ordered that drinks and refreshments be served and for music to be played. Everyone was dancing and singing and getting drunk. Ned refrained from drinking, but the rest of the Kelly gang partied on. Ned apparently was playing hop, step and jump with the so-called hostages. Others were just playing cards. Probably the most excitement ever to happen in Glen Rowan. As night came and with still no sign of the police, Ned decided to let who he thought was a sympathiser, Thomas Kernow, his wife, kid and sister go home. He told them not to dream too loud. However, Thomas went to give warning to the approaching train which was full of police, journalists and trackers. Byrne heard the train coming and the Kelly gang suited up in their armour. They stood on the veranda of the hotel as the police approached them. Six constables and five native trackers were led by Superintendent Hare and they started shooting at the armour-clad bushrangers. This went on for about a quarter of an hour or so. There were hits on both sides, but the battle was far from over. Ned had been shot in the left elbow and right foot 
And if you know what the armour suits looked like, these areas were vulnerable. Superintendent Hare was shot in the arm and the bleeding was so bad he had to leave for Benalla to get it treated. Dan, Byrne and Hart all took refuge inside the hotel and Ned took off into the bush. The police continued to fire into the hotel. Byrne, who was shot in the thigh, bled to death at the bar. It wasn't quite daylight yet and around 5am, Ned appeared in his suit of armour from the morning mist towards the police. Firing as he went, he kind of spooked the constables firing back. Ned was taunting the police and he slowly inched forward. As he was hit on the armour sections, he said it felt like blows from a man's fist. Then with a couple of good shots to his unprotected legs, Ned was felled and captured alive. He moaned, I'm done. I'm done. You know, it said that under his armour, he wore the green sash that he got from the parents of the boy he saved from drowning. You know, the one I mentioned before. Amazing. Still, Dan and Hart were inside the hotel and this standoff went through to the morning and into the afternoon when it was decided to burn the place down. At this stage, most of the hostages had either left or had fled before or during the gunfight. Still, as the fire began to take hold, there was no sign of Dan, Byrne and Hart. As the fire raged, Father Matthew Gibney entered the building to find only dead bodies. He administered last rites. Police dragged the body of Byrne out. After it was all over, Dan Kelly and Hart were found burnt beyond recognition with a couple of the townspeople. On the 19th of October 1880, but then adjourned until the 28th, Ned was tried for the murder of Constable Thomas Lonigan at Stringybark Creek, plus additional charges on the murder of Sergeant Kennedy, Constable Scanlon, the various bank robberies, the murder of Sherritt, resisting arrest at Glen Rowan, and with a long list of minor charges. He was found guilty, and the judge, Redmond Barry, sentenced him to death by hanging. Ned Kelly, bushranger, was hanged at 10am, 11th of November, 1880, aged just 25. It has been reported that his last words were, such is life. Some say it was, ah well, it has come to this. Australia is a young country in terms of European settlement, so we don't have a long history. So people like Ned Kelly are our folk heroes, and in Ned's case, our own Robin Hood character. Someone sticking it to the man and giving it back to the people. There have been a few films about Ned. One that you may have seen if you're older had Mick Jagger play him. And if you're a little younger, Heath Ledger played the role. One thing is for sure. If he was around today and he did what he did, he probably wouldn't be a folk hero. They'd probably call him a terrorist. How times change. So, as I said, as a little bonus to this episode, I will read out the Gerildery letter that Ned wrote detailing the justification of what he did. This was written in 1879, the year before he was hung. So, that's a brief story of Ned Kelly and his gang. There are plenty of books that go into much more detail, so if you are interested, give it a Google. And as I said, that's the end of the show for this week. We get to the shout-outs for Patreon. 
And it's a big thank you to Julie Cable. Thanks so much, Julie, who has been a long-time listener from Melbourne. Boom, Vagalunga. Also, the Voice of the Victim podcast. I ran their promo a few weeks back. It's a weekly podcast dedicated to telling the victim's side of the story. They discuss future effects of abuse and look for missed opportunities. So check that out. Voice of the Victim podcast. Thank you all so much for your support and thank you so much to all present and past Patreon supporters of the island. It really does make a difference, as you know. True Crime Island is a totally listener-supported podcast. I keep it ad-free. As you know, I don't like them and neither do you. If you want to support the island financially for as little as $1 a month, you too can become a Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland and check out the levels and rewards. Alternatively, you can do a one-off donation at paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland. That's what John Kelly did a couple of weeks ago. Thanks again, John. Also, you can support the island by getting hold of some merch such as t-shirts, hoodies, beach towels and fantastic tote bags. Everyone knows I love my mug of rage. I've got a t-shirt of mug of rage. A t-shirt of rage as well. All available from truecrimeisland.threadless.com. Now remember, everybody don't order the black mugs until further notice. So, there was a few purchases last week, so thank you very much in Boomfuckalunga. I do have keychains, lapel pins, stickers and beer koozies which you need to contact me directly for. I only have a few stickers left, but I will be ordering more. That can be done by emailing me, cambo at truecrimeisland.com, and that is also the best way to contact me personally for anything else, such as case requests, or just to say, boom, fuckalunga. Now, you don't have to spend money to support the island. You can also rate and review and tell your family, friends and workmates about the island. And if they don't know how to tune in, show them. Now, this is such a good way to support the show. I really want to build up the numbers this year. Search for True Crime Island on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and join the closed group on Facebook. We have amazing moderators which will let you in. Zenga, Erica, Susan and we've got Jason back. So that's about it for the show tonight. Lots of love to love Lady Jones and I'm your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night, Boom Fagalanga. <laughs>